Well, I greet you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is great to be with you this Lord's Day. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the prophecy of Malachi. Again, if you don't know where Malachi is at, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, if you go to Matthew, you go to the very first chapter of Matthew, you go back a few pages and you'll find Malachi. So Malachi is where we will be at. Also want to remind you that not only is Pastor Sam Renahan will be here on Thursday, on Friday and Saturday, but he also will be here on Sunday uh, preaching the Word of God for us. And the way we set it all up was, uh, I'm in Malachi, we're doing a current series in Malachi, and he's going to be preaching in Malachi. And, he's, and it's going to be an easy transition to what we're already doing. So that's going to be, that's going to be great, and I look forward to that. I want to read um, a portion of Scripture, and then we will commend our time to the Lord. Isaiah chapter 42. Let me get there. Isaiah chapter 42. Verse number 1 through 4 says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here. By your grace and mercy, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will enlighten our minds, enlighten our hearts. Lord, I pray that this morning your people will not hear me or see me, but hear and see you. That God, through the means of the preached word, you will speak through your people. You will speak through me to your people. Lord, I pray for this time that we will not leave here and say that was a good sermon, but we will leave here and say that 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 is a great improvement on my soul and I need to take that sermon and apply it to my life. Lord, I pray for this time. I pray for your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> in 1782, Thomas Jefferson gave a speech known as the State of Virginia Address. And in the speech, Jefferson denounced the evils and injustice of slavery. And his most memorable line was this. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. Again, Thomas Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. What Thomas Jefferson was basically saying was, 
our country is behaving and doing such unjust and evil things, it's only a matter of time until God wakes up and judge, judges our country's wicked deeds. Friends, that type of thinking is not far off from how we think today. I mean, if you look at the world that we live in, if we look at all the injustices and evils that's happening in our day, we can think that God is somehow asleep on his throne. We look at nations around us. Uh, young girls are being used as sex slaves. Uh, police officers are racially profiling young men across the country. Uh, we look at the nations around us, like North Korea and Sudan, who are run by evil dictators, and we ask ourselves, where is justice at? Why haven't we done something about this? But ultimately, what we will ask is, where is God at in all of this? We see homosexuality becoming more open every day. Uh, Prayers are taken out of our schools. The word God is banned from the teacher's vocabulary. Abortion rates are going up. More people are divorcing their wives and their husbands due to affairs. Is God unaware of all of this? Or does he even care? Is he so far from, is he so far removed from his creation? Is he not, is he not aware of all the injustice and evil that's taking place? For us Christians, we are surrounded by injustice. We see our, when we see our unbelieving friends who have more money than us, uh, we, we ask, why is God allowing that undeserving sinner to have more money than me, his child? And when we watch television and see the exciting lives celebrities live, we ask ourselves, why does God allow many of those unbelievers to live comfortable lives while the landlord's knocking at my door every single day? Have you ever looked at your life and compared it to your unbelieving friends? And have you saw that your life is nothing in comparison to theirs? They live the good life. Why does it seem like the majority of wealthy people in the world don't follow Christ? Why does it seem like God does, why does it seem like God cares more for the people who don't worship Him than the people who do? Recently, my fiance, uh, Leela's uncle was shot five times to death. And not one witness was present. No one knows who killed her uncle. And mind you, probably we'll never find out who killed her uncle. The point is this. Why does God allow such injustices to take place? Why do uh, the liars and the thieves and the killers seem to somehow always get away? And why do unbelievers prosper? Why do all good things seem to happen to evil and immoral people? Saints, if you ever ask such questions, then you're not alone. I've asked such questions, and the people of Malachi's day did as well. As we come to our passage today in the book of Malachi, we see a people who are no longer regarding a God as just and for their good. If you remember in the book of of Malachi, the background of the book of Malachi is God is using one last prophet named Malachi to speak to a group of Jews from the southern kingdom. Uh, These Jews have just come back to their homeland from exile in Babylon. And as they come back from their homeland, 
they are they are doing everything that they're supposed to be doing. The temple is being re- the temple has been rebuilt. Uh, the priesthood has been reinstituted. Uh, they are offering up sacrifices on a daily basis. They are worshiping the one true God Yahweh. However, the problem, or we can say more precisely, the burden of the Lord in the book of Malachi is this. All of their external religious practices are corrupt. Again, let's remember it's been 70 years since these Jews have come back to their homeland. And as the book of Malachi is written, what we see is a people who have grown frustrated toward God. They have grown bitter and cynical toward God. They're not happy with God. They, they have come back from their homeland and they, they expected certain promises to happen. They, they had a great expectation of what the Lord was going to do. However, when they didn't see those promises being fulfilled, when their expectations weren't being met, then they started to grow bitter and angry toward God. The people have issues with God, but mind you, God has issues with the people. And as we've been moving through the book of Malachi, we have imagined ourselves in a courtroom. And God is bringing charges against his people, Israel. In the first chapter, if you remember, God's first charge was this, I have loved you. God opens his prosecution in this court case with a reminder to these Israelites of their of his tender love and fatherly affection for them. He says, I have loved you. And then the people, you can get a glimpse and a hint of the people's attitude towards God when they say, how have you loved us? And then God goes on and demonstrates his love in two ways, by first choosing Jacob rather than Esau. And then his second way, by destroying their current enemy of the day, Edom. The last time we were together, we saw God bringing his second charge against Israel, which was this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? What we saw last week was Israel is not giving glory and honor to God the way that they ought to. The people, as a result of their bitterness and anger towards God, are no longer honoring God and giving God what he's rightly due. Sons honor their fathers and servants their masters. Well, since that is the case, then how much more are creatures to honor and glorify their creator? What we learned last week was the way we worship God reflects who he is. And since God is naturally, intrinsically worthy of all praise and glory, then we ought to give him what he is rightly due. Not only our praise, but our lives as a living sacrifice of praise. Now, as we come to our passage this morning, we will see the third charge in the book of Malachi, which is not going to come from God. Usually the charges have been coming from God. I have loved you. You have despised my name. But rather, God, in our chapter, in our verses this morning, is the one who is going to be indicted by the people. The people now are going to indict God and give a charge against God. And their charge against God is this. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? What we're going to see in these verses this morning is Israel is no longer viewing God as a God of justice, but rather a God who is evil. The people, as a result of their bitterness and anger towards God, are no longer thinking that God is working all things for their good and for their prosperity. In a nutshell, what we will see in these verses this morning is the people demand justice from God. 
The people are saying, where is the God of justice? And God is going to say, be careful what you wish for. Because the Lord of justice is on his way, and he will bring justice on you. This morning I have three points that will guide us through our passages. Number one, God's injustice. Number two, Israel's blindness to their injustice. And number three, God will bring justice through his son, Jesus Christ. Number one, God's injustice. Number two, Israel's blindness to their injustice. And number three, God will bring justice through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, going into Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. The word of the Lord says this, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Then why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed to Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife and your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself and your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces says, The Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. And as in former years, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's look at our first point, and that is God's injustice. God's injustice. Friends, what is justice? What do we, what do we mean when we, want, when we say we want justice? Remember in the, in the 60s and the 70s, and even till now, we, we have a famous saying, no justice, no peace. 
So what do we mean when we say we want justice? The, the Oxford Dictionary defines justice as a just behavior or treatment. Uh, the quality of being fair and reasonable. And one of the attributes, or more technically speaking, perfections of God is his justice. God is a just God. Mind you, he's not a just God because he hands out fair and reasonable declarations on people. God is just in and of himself. So if you think about a judge, and if a judge was to pronounce a judgment on someone who was innocent, but the judge said that he was guilty... Based off that judgment, we would say, well, that judge is not very just. That judge is not very fair. However, God is what justice is. God is the very perfection of justice. We can say that God is just. And justice, and God's justice, flows out of his holiness. God is holy. God is set apart. And his holiness demands Perfect divine justice against all sin. We can say that because God is intrinsically, naturally holy, then it's in his divine nature to detest sin. Since God is just and holy, then he must hate all evil. God is holy, then there is no evil that can be found in God. God is just. And as we come to our verses this morning, Israel's view of the justice of God is simply this. God is not just, God is evil. They're no longer seeing the holiness of God and his justice, but rather they're seeing that God is evil, intrinsically, naturally. But where did this all go wrong? How, how did Israel, how did we get to this point? Israel used to pride themselves in their worship to God because he was just and he was righteous. As you remember, how did God, how did God purchase Israel? How did he, when did he adopt them? He adopted them when he redeemed them out of slavery, out of, out of the wicked hands of Pharaoh. So, how, how is Israel now coming to the conclusion by saying God is not just? When God did a just thing by bringing his people out of slavery and bondage. Israel used to pride themselves in this, in this just God. However, now they have a different view of God. And the reason they have a different view of God, of, of God and who he is, is because Israel is not getting their way. When God was not acting according to their timetable, then their view of God's justice began to turn upside down. Look at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? That's, that's chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? The Lord here uses human emotion to convey how he would feel if he were a man. Again, verse 17 says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Now follow me here. The term weary can be, can be uh, used as meaning physically tired to prolonged labor, travel, or other activities. It can also mean being exhausted from persistent stresses, sorrows, and the trials of life. You understand that because you have been wearied before. But we know that God can't be stressed out. We know that God can't be sorrowful. 
We know that God can't grow tired due to prolonged labor. God can't grow weary. For it says in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 28, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And hear this, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. But, but wait a minute here. It says that God does not grow weary in Isaiah, but in Malachi it says that God grew weary, that you have wearied the Lord. What we have to understand about the nature of God and who he is is first, God is impassable. Meaning that God doesn't go through emotional changes like we do. God can't undergo change in his perfections. God doesn't become angry, nor, nor does God fall in love. You grow angry, you fall in love. Based off things that you have saw, so if you, if you watch a TV show, and if, it, if it's a sad TV show, an emotion will come upon you you will get sad. If you watch a TV show that's full of love and happiness, an emotion will come upon you. You'll feel happy. If you were to come up to me and bring me $100, my emotion toward you would be one of happiness. I would love you. I would invite you to my wedding. <laughs> now, mind you, if you, know, if, if you were to come up to me and punch me in my face, then my emotion toward you would be one of anger, would be one of rage. That doesn't happen with God. Emotions don't come upon God like emotions come upon us. Mind you, emotions oftentimes come in and out, uh, come in, come out of inside of us. So, so we can, we can, we don't necessarily have to think about something in order for us to be sad. We don't have to necessarily think about something in order for us to be happy. That doesn't happen with God. Emotions don't come upon God like they do to us. So since God can't become wearied, in what sense does God become weary in verse 17? You guys make the connection there? Isaiah says God doesn't grow weary. Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 says you have wearied the Lord. Do we see a contradiction in scripture? No, we don't. Of course not. There is no contradiction in Scripture. What we have to understand is this. When we read something like Isaiah chapter, chapter 40 verse 28, when it, said God, when it says God doesn't grow weary, that is a statement about God's being, about His nature, about who He is. When we read verses like Malachi chapter 2 verse 17, which says, You have wearied the Lord, that is a description of God's activity in redemptive history. This is what I mean. What we see in verse 17 of Malachi, Malachi is not saying God is growing restless or is somehow sorrowful by by Israel's unfaithfulness. But rather, what Malachi is saying is God's dealing with Israel is changing. But wait a minute, we said that God can't change. God doesn't change. The change is not happening intrinsically in God. However, the change, how the change is happening is the change is taking place in the revelation and manifestation of God's covenantal dealings with Israel. To put it in simple terms, God's long-suffering and patience toward Israel is coming toward an end. That's the change. What's What's happening is God's dealing with Israel. The verb weary is used figuratively of God. God is using human emotions to speak to us in ways 
that we can understand in order for him to make his point. Verse 17 doesn't mean God is growing weary or tired, but God is using that language to describe the current state of his relationship with Israel. And his current state with his relationship with Israel is one that is weary. That one, of one that has been prolonged for so, for so, for some time now. God's weariness represents that God's patience is coming toward an end. God is using human emotions that we are familiar with, familiar with to say that his patience is coming to a stop. For so long, God has demonstrated his, demonstrated his long suffering and patience toward Israel. God had every right to forsake Israel. Israel was that unfaithful and disobedient son. They weren't obedient. They weren't, call, they weren't, they weren't the, that son, that faithful son whom they were called to be. And what we see at the very end of Israel's history, before they go into 400 years of silence, God is revealing how the rest of redemptive history is going to take place. That my patience is you, for you is coming to an end. My dealing with you, Israel, is coming to an end. The patience toward this rebellious and wicked people is coming to a stop. Again, verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But here the people say, But you say, How have we wearied you? The people are so unaware of their sin. They are so insensitive towards how they've been treating God. And their rebellious attitude is evident in their response to God. How have we wearied you? We've heard, we've heard this before, right? I have loved you, Israel. How have you loved us? You have despised my name, Israel. How have we despised your name? You have wearied the Lord by your words, Israel. How have we wearied you? In what way have we wearied you, Lord? We are the ones who have been wearied. We are the ones whom God is treating unfair. We are the ones whose patience is running out for God, not the other way around. Again, they present a challenge to the Lord. They want proof of how they are wearying the Lord. And the Lord once again shows his love for Israel and he accepts their challenge. Once again, look at verse 17. How, how are they weary the Lord? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? God presents two ways in which Israel is wearing the Lord. The first way Israel is wearing the Lord is by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Israel, at this point of history, is seen as an insignificant place. The people are mocked and threatened by their enemies. That Their temple has no glory. They are constantly fighting and bickering amongst each other. The promise of a Davidic king has not come to fulfillment. Israel is still under Persian rule. The promised land didn't become paradise. The religious activities and worship are becoming burdensome. And as Israel compares themselves to the surrounding nations around them, they have come to one conclusion, that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. It's almost as if Israel can't actually believe what they are saying. Israel had a, a right theology proper. They had a right doctrine of God. Israel knew the being and nature of God. They were emphatically prohibited to do evil in the eyes of the Lord or to provoke him from anger. They were charged to do, to, by God to do what is right and good in the Lord's sight. 
However, in their eyes, it doesn't get them very far. What's the point of me doing right in front of the Lord? What's the point of me not provoking God to anger when it seems like all the ones who do wrong against the Lord in the sight of the Lord, it seems like all the ones who provoke God to anger are the ones who prosper. What's the point of me obeying God when the ones who don't obey God are the ones who are prospering? It doesn't make any sense. All these nations around us are worshiping false gods. They are profaning the name of God, but they are thriving. That's what Israel can't understand. It seems like the opposite is true. It seems like the ones who spit on God's name are the ones who do well. What Israel is thinking is God sees the evil in these wicked nations and he delights in them. Since God has employed out his wrath upon these wicked people, then that must mean that God loves the wickedness that they're doing. In many ways, what Israel is saying is, is, is this. Since everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, then that must mean that the Lord must be evil. They're connecting the evil deeds of men to the name of God. Because only evil enjoys evil. Only evil delights in evil. Only evil men will allow evil men to do evil things. Israel sees evil Israel says evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And they take it one step further. They say, and he delights in them. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. The Lord has already told them that he doesn't delight in wickedness. He's told them back in chapter 1, verse 8, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? He says in verse 10, oh, that there will be one among you who will shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. The whole idea that God approves the wicked is false. The very fact that he will not accept their half-hearted worship and lame and sick sacrifices show that God doesn't approve nor delights in the wicked. God, God delights in himself. God delights in his trying being. But what the people are saying is since God delights in evil, and since God delights in evil doers, then there is evil found in God. They are no longer viewing God as righteous and holy. Their bitterness and anger towards God has caused them to speak irrationally and say things that are far from the truth. God is holy. God is righteous. God hates evil. Isaiah 61, 8 says, for, the Lord love, for, the, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. God hates evil, and he commands us to hate evil as well. However, when we see evil things happening, it's so hard for us not to question the goodness, faithfulness, holiness of God. That's what's happening right now with Israel. They're seeing all these evil men prospering, and it's hard for them not to, it's hard for them not, not for them to view God in, in a way that's farthest from his being and farthest from who he really is. Friends, the presence of evil and injustice doesn't mean that God is evil because he's allowing it to happen, but it points to our fallen state in Adam. When we look at all the injustice in the world, how quickly do we look past our own sinfulness and blame God? Israel will go on and ask in verse 17, where is the God of justice? In Israel's mind, if God is just, then why hasn't he shown up? 
If God is so righteous, if He is so holy, if He is a God of justice, then why hasn't He come and put an end to all of this injustice? By Israel asking, where is the God of justice? What they are saying is, God is too far off from His people. That God isn't aware of the injustice that's happening to His people. And saints, we can be that way as well. We can, we can look at the world and we can look at our situations in our life and say that God is so far removed from our current life that He doesn't hear our cry. That He doesn't see the injustices that are happening in our lives in and around the world. Friends, I'm going to remind you that our God is not a cold, distant deity. That our God is not asleep on His throne. Just because we see evil happening in our world doesn't mean that God isn't aware, but what it means is God is demonstrating who He is. He's demonstrating His long-suffering and patience toward the wicked. The reason why God hasn't shown up and poured His wrath upon the wicked is because God is demonstrating His nature. God is demonstrating His character. He's demonstrating who He is. The Lord who is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, as Numbers 14.18 says. God is patient in His wrath. He is long-suffering in His justice. What we should demand from God is, is for Him to be long-suffering and patient, not to be wrathful. Because if God was to be wrathful, then none of you would be here. Israel should have known this. They should have, they should have, not, they should have not forgot their theology proper. They should have not looked at the world and viewed God in such a way that was farthest from who He really is. For they, ha- they have a history, a long history of God demonstrating His patience toward them. Numbers 9, verses 16 and 17 says this, But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you have performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, graciousness, and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. These people wanted to go back to Israel, but God, God said, no, my, in spite of you, in spite of you wanting to go, out, go back to the slavery of Egypt, I am going to, I'm going to show my long-suffering and compassion toward you. Friends, what we see in the injustice in the world, when we see injustice in the world, that should cause us even more to trust in God. And wait patiently for his justice. God's patience toward the wicked, toward the wicked, is not, is not, is, it doesn't come from a lack of justice, doesn't come from a lack of his justice, but it comes from the fullness of his compassion. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. That doesn't make any sense, though. If you are a God of justice, why are you waiting and showing long patience and being long-suffering to people who don't deserve justice? That doesn't make any sense. But that's how God works. How unsearchable are his ways. This is the first point that we have to consider. God is just. He's not a God who is far off, but He is a God who is near to His people. 
God will pour out his wrath and justice, but until then, he is demonstrating his long-suffering and patience. Remember in the book of Jonah, when, when, when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh? Nineveh was a wicked place, and Jonah knew that Nineveh was a wicked place. And Jonah ran from that, ran from, from, God's, uh, from God telling him to go to Nineveh, that wicked city. What was God doing at that time? He was showing his long-suffering and patience toward Nineveh. And what do we see? What happens in the book of Nineveh? In the book of Jonah? Nineveh repents. Nineveh turns from their wicked ways. Also, if you remember from the book of Jonah, the Lord caused a great storm to take place. Not that, not that God, put, God put Jonah on a boat and there was already a storm there. God caused the storm to take place. If you remember what Pastor Antonio said, there's not, there's not, not even, not even Mother Nature, not even the winds, not even the rain, not even the storms have an autonomous free will. Nothing happens from the sovereign hand of God, and the same can be said here when it comes to injustice and evil. Injustice and evil does not happen from the sovereign hand of our Lord. Evil doesn't have a free will. Injustice doesn't have a free will. Evil deeds don't catch God off guard. Evil and injustice has been ordained by God. Why? For His glory. That's what He does everything for. We learned that last week. God is displaying his character, particularly his long-suffering and patience toward you. If God was to show up, if God wasn't long-suffering and compassionate, you would not be sitting here right now. Praise God for his long-suffering and patience. Injustice and evil in the world doesn't reveal to us a God who is evil because he's not stopping it, but a God who is loving, compassionate, and long-suffering. For if God was to pour, pour out his wrath and justice, if God was to come and bring justice to this earth, he would probably start with you. Which leads to our second point. Israel's blindness to their injustice. Israel's blindness to their injustice. The people are demanding justice from God. They're looking at the, they're looking, they're looking at their, at the suffering of their current and political state, of their current and economical state, and, and it seems like everyone who does evil is prospering. The people are looking at their surrounding nations and they see the wealth. They see the abundance of food. They see everyone's crops are growing. They see all the other nations that are pagan thriving. And they ask, if God was so good, then why hasn't he shown up and brought justice? If God was really for us, then why is he allowing us to suffer while others prosper? The people are demanding justice to be served against the wicked. However, they, they failed and they haven't considered that they are the wicked. They are looking all around at the injustice that's taking place, yet they fail to look at their own injustice. Israel is blind to their own sin, to their own wickedness. I mean, let's just make a list of all Israel's unjust things that they're doing toward God. Israel has been treating the name of God as unworthy. They've, they've been bringing sacrifices to God that are unclean. The priests are corrupt. Israel themselves have shown injustice to God, not the other way around. But there's also another unjust thing that they are doing. The men are divorcing their wives. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one father? 
has not one God created us, then why are we faithless toward one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now here we see Malachi making his appearance in the book of Malachi. Because Malachi here is the speaker. So far, God has been the speaker, and Malachi has just been the mouthpiece. But they've been God's words. Here, Malachi presents himself. And he says, have, have we not all one father? Don't we all have one father, Israel? Then why are we being faithless toward one another? Since God is our father, since we carry his family name, then why aren't we acting like him? Why are we being faithless toward one another? We are spitting on the covenant the Lord made with our fathers. Malachi points back to the covenant that God made with Moses. The covenant that was, the covenant that was to be one of faithfulness. But Israel constantly was unfaithful. What essentially Malachi is saying is, this is not how we are supposed to act. We represent God here on earth. We are the ones who are to show the world who the one true God is. Yet we are dealing treacherously with each other. And how exactly are they being faithless to one another? Look at verse 11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Malachi goes on to say in verse 14, The Lord was a witness between you and the wife of their youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she was your companion and your wife by covenant. How exactly are they being faithless toward one another? By divorcing one another. Throughout the whole Old Testament, God has worked to keep his people not racially pure, but spiritually pure. He knew that foreign wives and husbands would lead his people astray. And what we see in Malachi is these Israelite men are divorcing their wives, whom they've been with since they were a youth, and marrying women from other nations. Nations who worship false gods and false idols. Nations who are pagan, who spit on the name of God. These men are divorcing their wives, not for anything that their wives are doing, but for their own selfish ambition. Israel, mind you, is on the decline. So these men are, are marrying women probably from Persia. Since Persia is so wealthy, they're saying, well, why don't I just divorce this woman and why don't I marry a, marry a woman from Persia? I will marry into the family and I will be prosperous. And I will, and I will be, um, my name will be of significance. In many ways, by these men divorcing their wives and marrying foreign wives, what they're doing is they're choosing which God they're going to serve. The Israelite men, by divorcing their wives, are shaming their family name. They're, they're saying, well, since God hasn't, God hasn't worked on my behalf, since God is slow in his dealings with me, since all these people around me are, are being prosperous, then why don't I go worship the God that they are serving? Maybe that God will be better than the God of the one true God, Yahweh. That's, a, that's what they're doing when they, when they are leaving their wives to go marry a wife from another nation, from another place. This is not what marriage was intended for. Marriage in the Old Testament was to display the union and faithful covenant God had between him and his people. But how often in scripture do we see Israel not being that faithful wife? But that adulterous whore. 
but also what we see in the Old Testament. What marriage was pointing to was the marriage between Christ and his church. The marriage between a husband and a wife is to represent the perfect marriage that Christ has with his church. As Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a glorious church without stain or wrinkle in any such blemish, but holy and blameless, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Christian marriages were instituted to display the gospel to the world. We are showing the world through our marriage what it means for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We are showing the world what it means for wives to submit to their husbands and follow their husbands as the church follows Christ. Side note, if you haven't heard the sermons by pastor on marriage and male headship and what it means to be a woman, you need to listen to those. We show the world what it means, what true marriage is to look like. However, what's happening in Malachi's day is the people are showing what the, what, they're showing the world not what a faithful marriage looks like, but what an unfaithful marriage looks like. What an unfaithful covenant looks like. Marriage is to display the glory of God. However, Israel is viewing marriage not for displaying the glory of God, but for their own personal gain. Husbands, if you are married to a woman who is of the faith, it is your duty to be faithful to her. Likewise, wives, if you are, if you are married to a husband who is of the faith, it is your duty to be faithful to him. It is your duty, husbands, to present your wives holy and blameless before the Lord. And without getting into details, it is your duty not to divorce her. Verse 15 says, God seeks godly offspring. If you divorce and remarry or even date someone who isn't of the faith, you are putting your children in danger. And this is what Israel is doing. They're crying out for justice of God. They say, God, where are you at? Where is your justice at? They're condemning God of his injustice when they are the ones who are doing the injustice. They say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord when they are the ones who are doing evil. They're whining, complaining about the long-suffering and patience of God when they are the ones who need the patience and long-suffering of God. Israel is judging God without first judging themselves. And friends, we can be this way as well. This could be us. Don't think that. Don't look at what Israel is doing and saying, Oh, Israel. Oh, Israel, what are you doing? Friends, you are Israel. This is you. Our sin can blind us and cause us not to see our own injustices and wickedness toward God. We can look upon other Christians and frown upon them and look down on them when we are no better. We look at unsaved people with disgust when we are supposed to be displaying Christ to them. Yes, there's many injustices that are happening all around us. People every day, every single day, people are rebelling against a holy God. However, we aren't any special because we commit injustice against God every day. Because how often do we not bring to God what he rightly deserves? 
all of our glory, all of our praise, all of his glory, all of our praise, our, our bodies as a living sacrifice. We pray for God to come and judge his people. We pray for God to come and judge the wicked deeds of his people. But, but how much more should he come and judge us who don't honor him and who don't offer him a sacrifice of praise as we ought to? Those people don't know the gospel. We know the gospel. So how much more judgment should be, should be thrown upon us? Be careful when you think about the injustice of God and, and, saying if, and, and coming to the conclusion that God is unjust. Look at yourselves first in the mirror. In Israel's mind, and like ours, we can get too comfortable. We can go through the routine. We come to church. We bring our Bibles. We, we take our notes. We are good listeners. We think like Israel. Everything is fine. We can point out all the wrongs that are happening in the world. And we, are, we can point out all the wrongs that God is doing without taking the log out of our own eye. Israel is demonstrating their injustice by marrying outside of the covenant. They're being faithless to their wives, which ultimately means that they're being faithless to God. Take heed to Israel's failure, saints. How often do we commit injustice against God and our own unfaithfulness? Examine yourselves. Let us pray the words of Job. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. We end this point with the warning words of our Lord. The ending of verse 16 says this, So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's look at our third and last point. God will bring justice through his son, Jesus Christ. God will bring justice through his son, Jesus Christ. Israel is crying out for justice. They are demanding that God will show himself to bring order into the land. And based off all that Israel has said to God... Based off everything Israel has done to God, you would think at this point God would just cut them off completely. But God once again shows his love and patience for Israel. The people ask, is the God of justice? The people ask, where is the God of justice? And in this point, we will see God answers their question. You want to know where the God of justice is at? Let me tell you where he's at. But how God answers their question and what he promises to do is far from what they've imagined. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God promises a messenger. In a sense, he promises another Malachi who will come and prepare the way of the Lord. And that's what he means when he says, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That, that God is going to send someone to clear out all the obstacles that are before the Lord. But we have to ask, who is this messenger that the Lord will send to prepare the way? Who is the one that's been given this unique and glorious task? We find our answer in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared. 
baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He would go on, John will go on to say, Mark will go on to say, and he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The messenger that will come to prepare the way of the Lord was John the Baptist. But why would the Lord need John the Baptist to come and prepare the way for him? Why would God need someone, why would God need a forerunner to come and prepare his way to remove all the obstacles from him? Look at verse 2. But who can adore the day of his coming? That is why. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. If the Lord was to come and, and show up, nobody would be able to endure it. And what God is saying is, I must send a messenger to prepare the way. Why? Because you are not ready. You are not ready for my coming. You are not ready for my appearance. What the Lord God is saying is, I must send a messenger. I must send a forerunner. You want justice, but are you sure you can handle justice when I come? No, you see the play on words there? God is equating justice and himself. You want justice? I am coming. God is just. God must prepare the word, the hearts of Israel for his coming. And get this. And in a sense, by God sending John the Baptist, he is once again demonstrating his long-suffering and compassion on his people. Because what was the message that John the Baptist preached? Repentance. Repentance. Even after that long history of rebellion, that long history of unfaithfulness, 400 years of silence, here comes this man who looks straight up crazy, saying, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God is near Repent. Repent of your sins. The Lord is appearing, preparing the hearts of his people. Because if he was to, if he was to come with no forerunner, then the people wouldn't have received him very well. Israel demands justice. The Lord says, I'm coming. He says in verse 1, and the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. The very temple where you worship me with your half-hearted worship, the very temple where you come and you cry on the altar because I'm not accepting your sacrifices, the very temple that you come and you bring your lame and sick sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice will come. The people want justice and the Lord says in verse 5, I will draw near to you for judgment. The Lord is saying, when I come, I'm not coming for Persia. I'm not coming for Babylon. I'm not coming for Assyria. I'm not coming for Edom. I'm coming for you. Amen. All the nations, all these rebellion, rebellious, wicked nations, they will have their day of judgment. However, yours will be, will be before theirs. What will Christ do when he comes? Look at verse 3 through 5. He will, sit as a, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And he will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and, and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, 
against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, visitors, saints, what will Christ do when he comes? He will come and bring salvation and judgment. He will come and bring reconciliation and condemnation. And friends, this is the whole point of this message. This is the great hope in the midst of great rebuke. What Malachi is doing in these verses, in our verses this morning, what Malachi has been doing is he's been setting up this great grand event that is about to take place. The coming of the Messiah. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's been, he's been preparing the hearts and minds of Israel for this one day when the eternal Son of God will come and tabernacle and live amongst his people. Malachi, 400 years before Christ stepped on the scene, is preaching the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to his people. The Jesus Christ, who was that faithful son that Israel was not. Jesus Christ, who did not break covenant with his father like Israel did. Christ did not look at the cross and see injustice. He looked at the cross and saw forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Unlike what Thomas Jefferson said, our God is, our God is not asleep on the throne. His justice is not asleep. However, he came from his throne and he did something about injustice and evil. The most unjust and evil things that are in this world are not the things that we see, but you and I. And in his life, Christ completed the works on the law, of the law, on the behalf of unjust people like you and I. In his death, he paid the full penalty of sin for unjust people like you and I. In his resurrection, he rose for unjust people's justification. We can't in and of ourselves make ourselves pure. We can't in and of ourselves bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. That is why the Father sent his Son to purify the impurities of his people. Christ in his life, death, and resurrection made the unrighteous righteous. He made the guilty justified. He, by his life, death, and resurrection, made the unjust just. On the cross, the Father preached, preached to his people love, forgiveness, and grace. In time, God preached to his people long-suffering, patience, and compassion. And in the fullness of time, he sent his Holy Spirit to come into our lives to preach to us adoption, sonship, and reconciliation. Amen. Friends, if you are here this morning, if you have not trusted in our Lord Jesus Christ, what Christ brings... Salvation is being offered to you. But if you do not place your faith in Jesus Christ, there is a great judgment that will be brought upon you. A judgment that you, will, that you cannot stand in front of. A judgment that you do not want to stand in front of. I plead, turn from your wicked deeds. Turn from your own injustices. And turn to the one who God who the Father on the cross pronounced unjust on our behalf. That's what Christ did. He, he, takes, he takes our sin and our injustices and he places them upon himself and he gives us his justice. He gives us his righteousness. In closing, saints, visitors, friends, 
Yes, there is injustice in the world. There is evil in the world. But the next time we think about all the injustice and evil that's taking place in, our, in the world and in our lives, remember the glory of God as he displayed his justice and love at the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's stand.